Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, if you didn't know that, thanks for stumbling by. We hope the serendipity will help. Um, today we have a guest we've wanted to get on for a long time. He's the uh, nonfiction book critic for the Washington Post. He's also a professor of journalism at, at Notre Dame, or an adjunct professor. And uh, he's a member of the Pulitzer Board. And he's the author of What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. Carlos Lozada, thanks for coming. I really appreciate you having on. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Um, you're containing your excitement well. I admire that. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, Right, so just so listeners know, this by the time this airs, because uh, we're recording this on Thursday, we may know for sure whether Joe Biden is the next president or we may not. Um, so we're going to talk with that in mind. And if people, if people find that disruptive to the space-time continuum, so be it. Um, but I, 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 I'm glad I, I'm getting this conversation with you in under the wire uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of feel like this conversation with you is sort of like indiana jones's hat where it's on the other side of the walls it's coming down and he grabs it at the last second so um uh you read what 150 books of that could be called trump era books and you didn't start cutting yourself um uh why do you explain what you did and why you did it first of all Sure. Um, first of all, everyone always sort of poses that as if it were sort of this this like horrific thing that I did to myself. And there's actually some some really great books in the mix. Um, and getting paid to read books by the Washington Post is a good is a good deal. So um, I, I won't I won't Fair complain enough. about that. Um, but it all kind of it's better than clearing roadkill. I grant yes, you. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> it, it, it it clears that bar. I um, I didn't plan on it. This sort of happened accidentally. Uh, I became the book critic at the Post, uh, the, the nonfiction critic, in early 2015. So just before Trump announced his candidacy, and when suddenly he was riding high in the polls for the nomination, um, I just thought, why don't I read some of his books to his 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 own books uh, to see mm. what they say about him? Because even even ghost written books can be revealing about how someone wants to be perceived, and so. Uh, I read eight of them, including, of course, The Art of the Deal, uh, and and wrote a piece for The Post. And I thought that would kind of be it. I didn't imagine that um, this would be something that would last long. In fact, when I pitched it to my editor, he said, um, yeah, you should do that, but hurry up because, you know, who knows how long this this, this thing's going to last. Um, right. And then, of course, you know, he starts doing well, winning primaries, wins the nomination. 
and there's this glut of books on the white working class that started to come out, um, you know, with, with Hillbilly Elegy, which was sort of exquisitely timed. And, uh, and so I read those, started writing about those books. Um, then he wins and suddenly there's all these resistance books. So I start reading those and writing about them. And that's when it hits me that this is my beat. This is what I'm going to be doing for a while that the debates of this period are going to be, um, so intense that they're going to produce just a glut of, of books. And that's what it's been, you know, for the last five years. Um, it wasn't until after the, the midterms that I started thinking about whether there's something I could say about these books collectively. Um, and I originally thought I was going to write like one big piece for the post for the, for the Sunday paper, just about what the Trump era books tell us. And I started writing them and I started writing it and I had a few thousand words. And that's when I realized two things. First, I had a lot more to say than I could possibly say in a Sunday piece for the post. But second, there was much more I wanted to read. And so books I'd missed, books I knew were coming. And that's when the idea of doing a, a book on the Trump books um, emerged. I think that in total, it's been probably, it's been well over 150, um, but around 150 that, that sort of made it into some version of, of this book. And there's going to be a lot more to come. I don't think this is this is over, regardless of, of what the result is. No, I think that's for sure right. I want to get to that in a little bit, but um, just to get in, in broad, I, I I know you like Yuval's book, which I'm glad because mm, yeah. I love Yuval Yuval Levin's book. And um, but you know, I would not. Yuval's a friend of mine. He's a colleague of mine at AEI. Um, he's sort of my. Um, eggheady rabbi on a lot of these kinds of issues. <laughs> but I don't feel like that's per se a Trump book. Yeah, it's a Trump, a Trump mm -hmm. era works, right? But, you know, Trump book is kind of cruel to do to someone like Yuval. But um, so just in, as in broad brushstrokes, you don't have to give me hard numbers, but like how many of the books that you read were explicitly Trump book, written by, allegedly written by Trump or Trump memoirs, memoirs of working mm -hmm. with Trump about the Trump campaign or Trump administration. And how many of them were about the sort of the moment we're in the zeitgeist, that kind of thing. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a, there's a difference between those kinds of books. Like Hillbilly LG is not, it's definitely a Trump mm -hmm. era book. It's a scene setting book, but it's not a Trump. It's book, not a, right? a Trump book as in, uh, you know, an, an insider, you know, ex official or, you know, a, a fire and fury, you know, the, the, the range of reported books from fire and fury to, to rage. Um, but I'd, I'd say that God, I, I haven't, I haven't sort of done the math to see exactly how many, you know, could only have existed, um, in, in the Trump era. Um, but I'd say roughly half are sort of like very specific Trump books, maybe more than half, maybe like two thirds are, are Trump era books. Um, and uh, maybe a third are books that, you know, may have Trump lurking in the background, but are really more about the the political or cultural institutional debates um, surrounding this time. I mean, Hillbilly Elegy wasn't a Trump book, right? It's, he's not even mentioned in it. It was it was largely written right. before Donald Trump. It happened to come out at that time, but it became a Trump book. It it became a book that, uh, you know, people across the spectrum of politics started using to, to interpret Trump. And it was appealing to, to everyone in that sense. Um, so, you know, that's the, the greatest example of the, of the non Trump Trump book. Um, 
okay, I, uh, let me do a discursion really quick on this because I've had this long-standing theory about how some books work mm -hmm. and the way you describe the hillbilly elegy book, which I, I think is a good book. Um, you know, it's certainly, it's worth reading, I think. And um, I mean, JD's on a bit of a journey these days that I don't completely understand, but that's a different issue. But there are a lot, in the 20th century, there are a lot of very bad books that nonetheless become kind of totems, right? Mm. They, 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 they kind of just, for, for whatever reason, they get the timing right. And I think, you know, the best example of that, and I, I, there are a bunch of them, but the best example of that is probably Charles Reich's The Greening of America, mm. which is just a garbage book as far as I'm concerned. And it's weird and like level one this and level two that and all about, but it's about the youth movement. And people were... At the time, right in the late 60s, they were desperate for some sort of intellectual ratification of where they were going already anyway. And this became it. And so lots of people never read it, but it became the, this the, a sort of totem, a, a symbol of things. I think Hillbilly Elegy is another one of those where people were you know, desperately looking on the shelf to find something to calibrate the new power structure in the, on the right. And they're like, aha, this is the, this is the book that explains why I can do that. Um, does that make sense to you? I think, I think it does. I think, you know, there are, there are books that need to get, I mean, I, I haven't thought about, um, the way you put it, you know, the, the sort of, you know, bad books that become, that become symbolic of a period. Um, but that makes a lot of sense because I mean, they kind of need to get one big thing, right. Even if they get a lot right. of other things wrong. I mean, they and, don't have to be bad books. My point right. is, you know, but it's just like you, you look back at certain books by like John, the philosopher John Dewey, or even like Herbert Crowley's The Promise of American Life. And you're like, my God, this became, you know, a multinational bestseller that, you know, <laughs> became you know, the, the Bible of the progressive movement in America. And you're like, this thing? Um, and you realize it's, it's partly because it's, it's a it's a lagging indicator rather than mm -hmm. a leading indicator. In and what, anyway, I didn't mean what, to interrupt. No, it's okay. What 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 hillbilly elegy had, I think, um, is that. It, so it it had appeal to a sort of conventional right in the whole, you know, bootstraps, um, you know, don't blame anyone else for your troubles, um, you know, the his you know, Mema, the, the grandmother figure is like, you know, don't be like those losers who are always looking for someone to blame, you know, like, and, um, and it also appealed to, to the left. And it was very much, uh, a sort of conventional, um, I mean, when, 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 when I say the left, I, I, you know, who knows what the left and the right is these days, but it, it had a certain kind of like meritocratic vibe, you know, he ends up at Yale law school. It, it, it's, um, it speaks to, how, um, you know, folks on, on the left who would, I mean, there were plenty of deplorables in the book, let's say that, right. And, 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 and Vance's own view of the people in his community was very harsh and, and tough. And so I think it kind of scratched everyone's itch, uh, at a moment when people were, were looking for, uh, for a book like that, like in hindsight, when I read a bunch of other um, white working class books, you know, it doesn't strike me as, as the one that I think is, is, is the best one or even the most beautifully written. Um, but it's his story and it, it just had enormous appeal. Uh, I always, I, I, I wonder, you know, what if, 
what if the Republican Party had, you know, eked out one more mainstream nominee, um, you know, gotten Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or someone, and that book came along as, as it was still going to, um, you know, would it have had anything like the appeal that it, that it had? And um, who knows, but it just, it really hit the moment and it, it, um, you know, it wasn't just people on the right reading it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So back to, um, right, the, the, the Trump ooze that you, um, you macheted through, um, what were, in your opinion, the worst of the Trump memoir tell all mm -hmm. books and why? Um, the worst of the Trump memoir. I would say that, well, I mean, there's, okay, worst is like Sean Spicer. Hardest right, to read. Right, right. You, can, like, you can define like, it any way the you thing, want. Because, you know, like Sean Spicer's book, I thought was just awful and, and forgettable. And I, don't, I haven't read the second one that he has out now, but um, the one called. <laughs> You're not alone. The one called. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was kind of alone on the first one. The, um, that, you know, th that did not sell very well. Um, and um, I think it was, it was the, the briefing, right? And, you know, that book just. It was both trying to tell, you know, the real story of what happened, yet still sucking up. Like it was, it couldn't decide what it was, and not that you have to be, you know, completely sort of in the tank or completely resistance, but you know, it didn't manage to sort of tell an interesting story about about any of that. And so that book, you know, I think of as as, you know, probably the the one that I sort of least needed to read. I got sort of nothing out of it. Um, except yeah. some really weird, you know, quotes um, where he says, you know, Trump is like a, a unicorn riding a unicorn over a rainbow. Like, you know, that's how unique he was. But <laughs> the the most disappointing of the Trump um, memoir books, which is different from being being the sure. worst, is um, probably a warning. The the anonymous now unveiled as as Miles Taylor book. Yeah, um, because it didn't say anything like that was. You know, usually, you know, anonymity is granted in order to acquire more information. And in this case, anonymity justified giving less information because the writer was so eager to preserve the, the you know, secret of his identity that there's no details. There's no stories they could in any way be identifying, but they could in any way be revealing. And so it's this, you know, 259 page book that does nothing but kind of lament Trumpism in very generic terms. Um, and so, like when I read the op-ed, uh, the, the New York Times op-ed that, that came first, I remember thinking like, okay, clearly, you know, he doesn't want anyone to know, you know, who he is. And that's why it just feels kind of generic. And its existence is the only thing that's noteworthy about it. The fact that, you know, he says, I'm, I'm part of this internal resistance. Um, and then the book was just the same thing, but stretched out to, to book length. And so I found that uh, incredibly disappointing uh, as, as a read. And also because he doesn't, um, you know, he, he talks about how they were, you know, the, in the op-ed, he kind of previewed this, this resistance, this internal resistance to Trump. And then in the book, it seems like all this resistance did was hang out like, and, you know, wring their hands. And, you know, you have a million different versions of saying, like, we were appalled, we bemoaned in private, you know, we almost quit, but didn't. Um, and so 
I just, I read it because I had to, because it was, you know, a, a big deal talker book, but I, I didn't get much out of it. So, I mean, just on that for two seconds, um, you also teach journalism, right? Mm -hmm. You got a Pulitzer Prize, you, you know, you, you, you know of what you speak in these, these <laughs> to old, the extent that anyone does. You, yeah. What, what did you think? I mean, I, I was fairly willing to defend the times on the anonymous op-ed when the clear implication that the person who wrote it was a senior White House official, which is what they basically said, mm -hmm. right? What do you what do you think about the their decision to describe him as a senior White House official when he, I believe, at the time he wrote it, he was not even you know, the chief of staff at right. DHS. He was the deputy. Was I think he was low. the deputy like, or the advisor yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, when I read the op-ed, right. Um, you know, I sent an editor there who I know a note on the opinion staff just saying like, wow, that's a great, you know, what a, what, what a talker, that's a great get. Um, uh, and, you know, my assumption as a reader is that it was a higher level person than it ended up being. And I get the, the notion that people like Miles Taylor, even in the role he was in then, um, are described in news stories as senior officials. Um, but I think that's different. I think that's almost a technicality in this sense, especially because it's an opinion piece, it's not a news story. And the implication of uh, seeing, you know, an, you know an, an anonymous official being, you know, being granted that, that cover, you know, to tell hard truths. Like I, when I read it, I assumed it had to be someone uh, at a, at a very high level, because I kept thinking, why would the times otherwise, um, uh, you know, give that person this, this platform. Um, and so, uh, you know, there was someone who I thought it was, uh, you know, I, I, I read the book, uh, very carefully looking for kind of, you know, tea leaves and, and clues. And I, you know, developed a, a sketch in my head of who the person was. Then I went around asking people who had um, I, I kind of assumed it was someone who had worked in in the George W. White House, and I went around asking people who had covered that White House, um, saying like, "Okay, you know, here's the you know 15 characteristics of this person. You know, who do you know? Who do you remember who would fit that mold? Who is now working in in the Trump administration?" And I came up with someone who I thought it was, um, and a colleague of mine and I reached out, um, and uh, you know, he just denied it flat out, which of course the author said he would do. Um, but like if someone had said like, oh, you know, it might be Miles Taylor, my reaction would have been, oh, that's impossible. He's, he's just too junior a person, you know, and the, and the times wouldn't do that. So I was surprised. I was, I found it to be technically accurate, but in a larger sense, you know, surprising. Yeah. I, mean, I guess, I mean, maybe this is something you can put in the context of the books that you read, but I mean, as you know, I am not a Trump fan and, um, but I'm not a resistance guy either. I, I think that the mm -hmm. res, a lot of the resistance stuff, and I know you have some harsh words for some of the resistance writing, it, it always has to go to 11, you know? And, you know, <laughs> it's always, um, you know, Donald Trump puts salt on his French fries. Hitler puts salt on his French fries, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and it seems to me that when the problem with so much of the sort of resistant resistance aesthetic or ethic um or both that infiltrates 
that penetrates into a lot of the mainstream news coverage and even on the opinion side, particularly places like the New York Times, that it lends itself constantly to exaggeration. And then when the, no, when the facts come out, you set expectations so high that anytime something comes a little below it, you're like, oh, well, there's no news here, or this is a fizzle, or, or see, they were, they were lying. And I find that, the, that, that this is one of the great gifts to Donald Trump, is the quality of the resistance to him is mm. so hyperbolic that the people who don't want to pay attention to politics and don't want to really like get involved, they keep getting seduced into getting outraged. And then the outrage turns out to be still outrageous, what the actual mm -hmm. thing was, but just slightly less than what it was billed as. And you do this over time and it creates this numbing effect where people are just like, oh, they're always, you know, swinging and missing. And, you know, they hyped the Russia thing and they missed on that. And the mile, the, the Miles Taylor op, anonymous op-ed seems like a perfect example of that, where they made it sound, or they let people jump to the lead, get to the conclusion, like, oh my God, Mike Pence is taking notes, you know, and it, it, it wasn't star. anything like Lone that. Star. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it was, you know, a, a, a colleague of mine, when Miles Taylor um, emerged not as anonymous, but emerged, you know, a few weeks earlier in the Republican voters against Trump or whatever the, the, the sort of videos he was, he was engaged in. Um, someone reached out to me and said, oh, I bet he's anonymous. And I was like, no, no way. Like he's not, he's not enough of a player. I mean, you know, basically it was my, my reaction was like the times wouldn't do that. Um, and, but I can see how in a, in like a newsroom sitting around with your colleagues kind of way, you can tell yourself, well, like, you know, we've cited him as a senior official in the news pages. You know, why wouldn't we do that here? Um, and it's a way it's it's also I mean, it, it may be what you're talking about, about sort of like just the instinct to to ratchet it up. It, it may also just be, uh, you know, hewing to the conventions of journalism in a way that that doesn't um, doesn't make sense in just like a, like a general reader way. Like, you know, if we call him a senior official, why wouldn't we do that in the byline of this piece? Um, but I think they in immediately had to recognize, you know, given the speculation that emerged that, that everyone, including journalists assumed it was someone much, much higher. Um, but anyway. Well, you know, I mean, in, just in the sort of hothouse environment that we live in, the, you know, the tendency towards hyperbole and exaggeration, which, um, I think defines so much of the right and the left these days. Uh, some people could be forgiven that it's really actually um, caused not so much by sort of political dementia or Trump derangement syndrome, but just simple old fashioned dehydration. And that's why I want to talk to you about liquid IV. Yeah, so I, you know, this week I was up till on election night, I was up till 3 30 in the morning, the next morning, and then uh, Zoe and Pippa woke me up at about six o'clock um to fulfill my obligations to them and between election night alcohol and day after election caffeine i was crazy dehydrated um and uh that's one of the reasons why i thought it was so important to use to to, to nip into the liquid iv because uh staying hydrated or rehydrating as was the case with me it's just vitally important to keep your brain working. Um, and uh, the ease of doing it is just so great. And um, 
uh, and you do really feel the results. And so I'm, I'm grateful for having it around the house. One serving of liquid IV provides the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water alone. There are three delicious new flavors, sweet and juicy guava, crisp watermelon, and comforting apple pie. I like the guava. I'm not a uh, liquid apple pie guy, but that's nothing against liquid IV. Um, liquid IV contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Healthier than sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors or preservatives, and less sugar than an apple. Made with clean ingredients, non-GMO, vegan, and free of gluten, dairy, and soy. What makes Liquid IV so effective? Cellular transport technology, CTT. The optimal ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium delivers water and nutrients into the bloodstream. It's the perfect balance to help you hydrate more quickly and effectively than water alone. One stick of Liquid IV and 16 ounces of water can give you as much hydration as two to three bottles of plain water. Moreover, Liquid IV is doing good work around the world. The company has donated over 6.7 million servings globally. In response to COVID-19, their products are being donated to hospitals, first responders, food banks, veterans, active U.S. military, over 3 million servings so far. So, Liquid IV is available nationwide at Walmart in the beverage section or other fine stores, or you can get 25% off when you go to Liquid IV com and use code DINGO at checkout. That's liquidiv.com, promo code DINGO for 25% off anything you order. Promo code DINGO. Get better hydration today at liquidiv.com, promo code DINGO. All right, so um, back to the um, to the larger argument. I mean, what, what you know, other than like, I mean, I'm, I'm curious what you think about the credibility of some of the books that have been written. What was the the Vanity Fair guy? Um, the Vanity Fair guy. Uh, uh, is it Vanity Fair? You know, the really Fire and Fury. Oh, Michael um, Wolf. Yeah. What was it? Michael mm-hmm. Wolf. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's as bad as Ed Klein or anything like that. But uh, I don't trust his accounts. I'm sure they're probably defensible in a court kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, like. Full disclosure, you know, my wife worked for Nikki Haley, and oh, I, yeah. I know some of that world, and I know other people in the administration, and I don't necessarily always trust him. I mean, I think Ed Klein makes stuff up, um, and that's a different issue. But, um, uh, but so, what was the, if you, ha- I know you hate these questions, or I assume you hate these questions, but if you actually had to tell people Here's one book that actually explains what was actually going on in the administration in a f- fair way. Um, what would you recommend? And if, and if by Washington Post contract, you have to say Woodward, what one other than Woodward's <laughs> books would you say? <laughs> I don't have to say anything by Washington Post contract. The, the, the beauty is that um, my only requirement is that I, I can't review those books in the Washington Post because they're my colleagues. Um, so I didn't review a very stable genius or rage or fear. Um, but I, but I cover those books and I, I, I read them and I, I cover them in, in my book. Um, I can't say that there's a single book, um, because so many of them tell 
the story from different vantage points that are that are really useful. Um, a book that I'm almost done with right now is um, Michael Schmidt's uh, book, Donald Trump versus the United States. And one thing that he does that I appreciate is that sure, it's a it's a Trump book. Trump's in the title. It's about it's about the Trump presidency, but it tells the story from the point of view of um, uh, Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, and and Jim Comey, uh, the former FBI director. And you know, those are the characters that are the real characters of this era, right? Like Trump is not you know, he's not that complicated, right? He's not super interesting as a person in that sense. But these people beneath him um, who are, uh, you know, Don McGahn at this, you know, all he wants to do is just get conservative judges through the process and approved, right? That's like, that's why he's there. He doesn't even want to really be White House counsel in a, in a conventional sense. He just wants to kind of like get, get a more conservative judiciary. Um, and, and yet, you know, so he's in there at the same time ends up being, you know, a, a huge, uh, source of information for, for Mueller's team. Right. I mean, like, that's just, that's a great story. That's an interesting story. Um, and so I, I appreciate and We should books. say for re- yeah. people who don't remember that he doesn't do that because he's some sort of secret snitch or anything like that. Oh, the no, White no, House no. <laughs> waved attorney client privilege yes. and said, tell them everything they need to know. Right. And he did. Yeah. No, no, no. He, he wasn't a, a sort of source in a, in a journalistic sense. He's not meeting with Bob Mueller in an Arlington parking garage, you know, like he's, you know, he just ended up being, um, you know, sitting for a bunch of interviews with, with, with those guys. And, um, and so that just makes him a really interesting figure. Um, and, and so, you know, that's a, a book that tells the story from from a slightly different perspective. is a is a book that I appreciate. Um, but even some of the some of the huge books. I mean, Rage got a ton of attention for the you know seventeen or eighteen or whatever interviews that that Trump and Woodward had. And the second half of the book is almost you know a transcript of those interviews. Um, and that was the focus. When really, I found the first half of the book far more interesting. And that was. Uh, where it tells the story of the early Trump presidency through the eyes of of Jim Mattis, the former defense secretary, and Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, um, and just how terrified they were of like an actual nuclear conflict with North Korea, you know, and 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 that to me is a lot more memorable than the conversations between Trump and and Bob Woodward, um, and yet and yet you know it's it's the latter that that dominated. The, the conversation surrounding surrounding the book. The same with with um, with a very stable genius by by uh, Phil Rucker and Carol Lenning at at the Post. Uh, you know, it's the it's all the kind of insane anecdotes that that get all the focus. But that's the first book, for instance, where I learned that Robert Mueller's team passed up the chance to review Bill Barr's letter characterizing the Mueller report before it went out. Before you know. They just said like, no, that's not, that's not our job. You know, and like in hindsight, I bet they wish they had, right. You know, it's, you know, yeah, that, you know, some of them. Yeah. Yeah. And like, <laughs> and like, that's an amazing detail that I didn't know, you know, and to me, that's where those books are, are great. But part of it is all because of fire and fury, right? That was the first big inside the Trump white house book. And like, I remember I got it on a Thursday and I stayed up all night, you know, reading it. And, you know, I, filed my review early the next afternoon and, you know, because you had to, because it was suddenly this sensation. Um, 
And that's where I feel like that book set a template for for Trump books to follow and that it's just about getting the craziest insider anecdotes and stories and oh my God moments. Um, and, you know, more power to him. I mean, it didn't work twice, you know, like I think Siege, the the second book that he wrote just was a lot, um, got, got a lot less attention. Um, but it certainly was, um, you know, even a book that did really well, like um, Devil's Bargain by Josh Green about Bannon and Trump, um, which is a great sort of look at that, how that weird connection happened um, and became a New York, you know, number one New York Times bestseller. Um, it just didn't have that kind of overwhelming zeitgeist vibe that that Fire and Fury had. Um, and it kind of sort of set a pattern for for what a lot of Trump books by, you know, more sort of experienced or, or just better, you know, Washington political reporters, um, you know, the, the books they ended up writing to. So is, uh, I want to ask you about Bannon, but, but is there, in all of these books, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I, I get, I get a lot of these books, you know, review copies of them. Oh yeah. I will dip it. I'll dip into some and others. I'll just like look at and laugh and throw on a pile. But, um, uh, I haven't read many of them all the way through, in part because of this thing, you're, this phenomenon you're talking about. I was like, I've heard this story before. I've heard this story before. Oh, there's a different angle on the same kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I've been trying very hard for years to cultivate this thing that Bill Crystal has, where he and his wife have this division of labor where she reads all the books and explains them to him, and he reads all the magazine articles and he tells him tells her what's going on and that's so, amazing um, okay i haven't i haven't quite gotten my wife on board with this but she's read a bunch of them and i'm like you know i read i read tim alberta's book which i thought was actually very good uh the american carnage book um and um but is there a is there a book out there written by somebody on the inside that gives you some interesting nuanced picture of donald trump himself as more than the caricature that we see because i think part Mm -hmm. of the problem why i don't want to read a lot of these books is the takeaway is trump's an idiot Mm -hmm. right or trump's a a narcissist lizard brain dude who um has no depth and no interior life and says crazy things and thinks with and and operates on his gut and i know that about the man and um you knew that during the campaign you knew that without having to read the books yeah yeah, and the anecdotes that confirm that will come out mm-hmm. anyway. So is there, but is there one that says, oh, you know, this is, this shows a more nuanced side of the guy. Uh, you know, maybe there's more than meets the mm-hmm. eye. Um, has anyone written anything that remotely persuasive along those lines? I think the, first of all, I mean, the, the, the quick answer is there's, there's no book that really persuasively says there is more than meets the eye because Trump is exactly as advertised, right? Like he, he's always been who he is. Um, what meets the eye is what is there. But two books that I think gave me a really good view of that and a really novel view of that um, are uh, first Mary Trump's memoir. Uh, Mary Trump, his, his, you know, Trump's niece, um, who is both a close relative, but also has a doctorate in clinical psychology. And, you know, that combination is sort of amazing to 
um, uh, to try to understand Trump. And just, you know, she has a clear ax to grind, right? The, I mean, you know, she, her side of the family was, 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 you know, cut off for a while from the, the Fred Trump inheritance and both Fred Trump and Donald Trump treated her dad, Freddie Trump, you know, horribly. Um, but she's upfront about all that. And she just has a perspective that, that none of these other authors has. And so, um, I found that book riveting, you know, and, 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 and even though it came so late in the Trump presidency and you think, you know, all there is to know, um, but that, that told me things I did not know about the, the dynamics inside this family. The other book, um, which I actually just hated as a, as a reader, um, because it was like, that's the book that I finally just wanted to give up on reading Trump books. Like I just cried like uncle, like I'm done. I don't, I can't do this anymore. It was Michael Cohen's book, Michael Cohen's memoir, Disloyal, because <laughs> sort of every kind of odious thing you imagine, um, you know, Trump doing without the glare, the media glare of, of the White House on him, you know, is, is in that book. And um, and Michael Cohen, you know, gleefully along for the ride, you know, Michael Cohen writes early on that, you know, he fantasized about being like, you know, the young Henry Hill in, in Goodfellas, you know, like, uh, like, you know, running errands for the bad guys and, and how exciting that was. Um, <laughs> but you know, that book, that book gives you, um, a great, just look at how Trump operated day to day, uh, you know, for, for 10 years or however long Cohen worked for him. Um, and, and so I think if you're, you know, to, to really understand the guy, to really sort of know what he's like, um, I think those two books were probably the most helpful for me. And one of the, one of my favorite moments in, in the Cohen book that just captures so much of the last four years, the last five years, um, is the scene early on when Cohen's just starting to work for Trump officially full time. And they, they come down, you know, they're in his office, uh, at Trump tower. And then they, they come down and they're, they're walking through the atrium of the building. And this is sort of like when the apprentice is big and, you know, he just gets mobbed, right? Like people are just coming up wanting photographs and autographs and, and, you know, Michael Cohen is just, you know, blown away and, and Trump kind of like leans in and winks at him and whispers, this is what Trump is all about. <laughs> right. And, and like, and he's right. That's exactly what Trump is all about. You know, the, 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 the theater of it all, the, the adulation, you know, like that's, that's what it's about. And that's what the presidency has been about. You know, like he, he has, you, you can tell that he feels that the, the theatrics and the atmospherics of the job are the job, right? Like giving the speech, you know, the, the, the signing ceremony, you know, the, you know, the state of the union, um, you know, that's what Trump is all about. It's those, those moments, not like the hard work of governing, you know? Um, but so that, that moment, that moment just sort of stayed with me. Also, you know, I read it late in the Trump presidency, right? That the book only came out this, this summer or fall or whenever it was. And, um, and when I, when yeah, I got, got to, out of jail, when I got to that moment, <laughs> right. But, and that's the only moment when, when Michael Cohen, like he, he was writing chunks of it in jail, you know? And, yeah. and that's when he realizes, oh, gee, you know, maybe this wasn't a good idea, you know? Um, yeah. but, but when I, when I hit that moment, it just seemed like perfect because that's, you know, this is what Trump is all about is, is the truest thing he's ever said. So, um, Michael Cohen should say, you know, 
that he's got something in common with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, right? Because they both wrote their, oh my. <laughs> their, ma- their, mag- <laughs> their magnum opuses, you know, in, in prison. Um, uh, reminds me of Bill Buckley. In the great, about in the great anyway. annals of literature, yes. Yeah. That's right. You know, I mean, like, it, there's got to be some sort of bar trivia game where, you know, what, which three of these four writers <laughs> wrote their biographies in prison. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. The, 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 I mean, the Cohen thing, the Mary Trump thing, I think is very sad, you know, mm-hmm. because it's just sad that she's in this, it's, the whole it's story a family, it's a family and it's, yeah, it's very sad. Yeah. And, um, I give, you know, I, I, have, I had a brother who died. He had demons. I give people much more latitude about family stuff because families are complicated and all these kinds of things. And that's why I find some of the Hunter Biden stuff to be so over the top and ridiculous. But that's that's neither here nor there. But, you know, part of my problem with like Michael Cohen and a lot of the people like Michael Cohen is that he's a bad guy. I mean, I think he's I think he's. Uh, pretty dumb but that's you know you don't have to comment on that but it's the that he's he's a bad guy who knowingly and excitingly did bad enthusiastically did bad things for another bad guy for a very long time and then he only becomes any any contrition that he shows is entirely forced and and at least somewhat market driven and um and this sort of gets to the resistance thing it's like all of a sudden you know like michael avenatti and michael cohen become heroes, even though they're probably just bad dudes. And, um, and they're, they're, they're simply expediently taking advantage of this moment. And that, that's, I don't know, that's one, of, I've lost my train of thought, but that's sort of, I mean, does it come across in the book that he is actually legitimately contrite? That he, is he like Colonel Nicholson at the end of Bridge of the River Kwai? That, oh my God, what have I done? Or... Would he have just been Michael Cohen forever had he not, you know, been caught pilfering taxicab medallions or whatever the hell that was? Yes, it is. It is clear to me, and I, I think I, I wrote this in my review. I have to go back and 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 see what I actually said. But um, I don't. I think he's not. He's less sorry than just sorry that he got caught, right? I, I, I mean, and that's, you know, that's kind of an obvious difference reading this kind of book he was he was pitching a different book he was pitching um you know not long before he was pitching a book that was going to be called uh trump revolution from the tower to the white house understanding <laughs> donald trump right and and um and and that was going to be his story right that was going to be that was the story he was going to have to tell and he was going to stick to it you know and um and literally it's when he's in jail that he's like oh damn like you know maybe maybe this wasn't this wasn't great and so, no, I, the, the, the sense I get from his book is that he's, um, you know, there's a difference between being sorry and being sorry that, that, that you got caught. And, um, and yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'll, sorry, that just went on too long, but I'll, I mean, yeah, that's, that's my, my conclusion on, on that book. And I'm sure I, um, I, I tried to put it more eloquently when I, when, when, when I wrote the review. Um. So and look, I mean, I like I get it. It's sometimes on podcasts it's hard because you've you we're both people who probably write more than 
um, a lot of people speak <laughs> and you get kind of tongue tied. Yes. And sometimes it's hard to cut through the fog, particularly when you're talking with people talking about people like Michael Cohen. And it's sometimes more important to, to keep your eye on the on the the fundamentals and on the 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 true north. And that's why I want to talk about Acton Line. Acton Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Acton Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Acton Line, visit acton.org slash dingo, or just search for Acton Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your best and greatest podcasts. That's acton.org slash dingo to subscribe. We thank the Acton Institute for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so um, I feel really weird about this because, like, I've written a few books. I read, I read a lot of books to, re- to write those books, and I never had to give a sort of book tour interview where people just asked me about the books I read rather than the book mm-hmm. I wrote. And this is kind of weird. And, I, and so... That's absolutely um, fine. That's absolutely fine. It's okay. I mean, the the the, the books I, I read make up the book I wrote, so it's fine. No, I know, but that's true of a lot of people's books. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I understand the conceit of yours is different than other books, but still. So um, what are the big takeaways of, you know, you, the, the title of the book is what we were, what were we thinking, right? So what were we thinking? You know, what will, like, presumably your book is going to be of more interest to a certain kind of historian of this moment than a lot of other books. Um, and like, what, what will be the takeaway? What, what, what is your takeaway? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if someone just came out of a coma and said, okay, so what's, what's going on? What are people thinking, trying to make sense of the headlines that they're seeing? Um, you know, what were we thinking? Oh my God. I'm trying to imagine the person coming out of the coma <laughs> and, and ha- ha- having to explain the last four years, like, yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a sense in which we weren't thinking all that hard. Um, you know, first off, you know, part of the reason that Trump was elected is simply that no one thought it was possible, right? And 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 treated the whole thing accordingly. Um, he got a lot more coverage and attention because people thought it was a sideshow and a publicity stunt. And, um, you know, the the... I've always thought that there would be a great book to be written called um, uh, We Thought She Would Win. And it's about everything that big American institutions did or did not do because they assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Um, and that is everything from the uh, the decisions at the FBI, that the decisions that, that, that Jim Comey made. Uh, you know, whether to, you know, to announce the reopening of the investigation or to be so, so tough on Hillary Clinton in his, in his statement that, that summer in 2016, when he announced that there weren't going to be charges, um, 
what the Obama administration did and not sort of going after the Russians in a serious way, just assuming, well, you know, Hillary will will take care of that when the time comes. And I don't want to be seen like we're like we're, you know, engaging in in electoral politics. Um, and like I said, the press. And so I think that, you know, in, in, in part, Trump was elected because it didn't seem like it was possible. Um, and, and another another chunk of that is this whole debate over Trump supporters and 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 all the white working class books. Um, and that just got bifurcated into this very simplistic. Uh, well, either they're a bunch of racists or, you know, it's economic anxiety. And 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 you have whole books that are devoted to upholding one or the other of those perspectives rather than sort of accepting that, that people are, are complicated and make decisions for, for a lot of reasons and that prejudice and economic conditions can be, can be linked, can be inextricable. Um, and that the real concern is not whether those struggles drive people to one candidate or another, but rather that leave them thinking that there's no room in the political system for them at all. And that, that is what makes you more inclined to, you know, maybe support someone who, who wants to burn it all down. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, in terms of what else we were thinking, I think that, you know, all these memoirs of identity politics and all these movements that have emerged, um, what I find most compelling in them is not, is, is how the quest for group representation and group rights is just so grounded in, in the quest for individual dignity. The best memoirs of this period are, are ones that, that show that. Um, and, you know, another thing that I learned reading these books is that the, the, the debate over truth, uh, in, in this period is a, is a really, a really significant and important one, but it can't end up in, it, it can't be that the, the alternative or the answer to, to the the lies of this administration and the you know alternative fact kind of worldview um uh, it, it can't be that the answer is uh sort of you know moral preening and 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 self-righteousness um but the truth is a painstaking process of discovery um and so to me that that kind of gets lost, you know, in, in the, in the resistance books, one of the things you see is, you know, people declaring that Donald Trump's moral compass is broken, you know, that's great. That's great. And, 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 and probably correct. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, your moral compass therefore always, you know, points to the true North. Right. And, and, um, and I think it's been easy to jump from one of those to the other, I think to our, our detriment. And so anyway, those are a few of the things that I, that, you know, fall into the rubric of, of, of what we were thinking. Um, and one of the things that I, that I learned going through this book, the, the crazy thing is that when I, when I, when I pitched the book to a publisher, like I didn't know where I was going to end up. I just said, look, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to read all these books. I want to, I want to, you know, find a way to create sort of a, a taxonomy of, of, of Trump studies. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, what the, what the ending is. And I hope you can sort of trust that we'll end up somewhere, uh, interesting and, and revelatory calling it an intellectual history feels like a bit 
much. Sometimes I hope my, my greatest hope is that perhaps future intellectual historians trying to get a sense of this period will find it useful. Um, but it's really more of a snapshot, I think, of, of a moment. I, I very zealously took just books between 2016 and 2020. I didn't want to do the thing where like, you know, here's the book from 1967 that, you know, foreshadowed everything, which a lot of people have, have, have done. And, um, and both is not super helpful and would get too vast too quickly. Um, so I just wanted to capture a snapshot of a variety of American writers and thinkers and academics and journalists and insiders trying to respond to Trumpism. So as I said at the beginning, we're not going to, uh, th that we may know the results of the election by the time this comes out. And um, let's say for the sake of just wacky speculation, Donald Trump loses. Um, what do you expect the, right, so let me back up and do a little rank punditry very quickly. I think Trump is going to lose. Um, it's going to be very close, but I think it looks light way. Um, but it's not definite yet. The thing that's a little disturbing for, for people of my orientation in all of this is that the results are going to be sufficiently close and the, the, uh, bull of this, the election was stolen is already accelerating. Um, and it will become a stabbed in the back myth kind of thing very quickly on certain parts of the beaver swamp, Trumpy right. And those two things combined could very well, along with the, the nature of the coalition that Trump put together, could very well mean that he announces in a week he's running again in 2024. Um, but let's say that doesn't, let's say for now that doesn't happen. Um, and let's just assume that he goes to his, um, that it's not, that Mar-a-Lago isn't uh, Elba, it's um, St. Helena, right? I mean, he's done. And uh, uh, what, um, what are you looking for in the books to be written by people who serve the administration that haven't written one yet? And whose do you want to read the most? There's several memoirs of the of the Trump administration that I want to read. Um, I want to read Anthony Fauci, um, not just because he, uh, you know, is 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 dealing with COVID and 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 dealing with Trump, but just he's also had an, an extraordinary kind of Washington and science career, and I think there's a good story there. Um, you know, in in some ways. It reminds me of, you know, Comey's memoir that was a little, a little annoying, but also just really interesting because it wasn't just about, you know, here's how I had dinner with Trump. It's, it's sort of the whole arc of his career, which is quite fascinating. And so I would like to read that about Anthony Fauci. I would love to read Kirsten Nielsen, um, if she ever would write a memoir. I mean, she was right in the middle of some of the most painful debates for the country and for the administration over, over family separation. Uh, and 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 border policy and immigration when she was running Homeland Security, um, and I'd like to hear that story. Um, uh, I also want to know more, like Jared Kushner's presence in this White House uh, and all the different things that he was engaged in um, and somehow given 
given you know power over has been so astonishing that I I would want to read a book that is purely about um about Kushner and 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 sort of everything he had his hands in one one recurring theme in in so many of these books whether it's a book about about immigration or about something else is just um how wrong he often is and how um and yet how arrogant he is about his ability to sort of deal with everything um it's this sort of extraordinary sense of of um of entitlement and um, and so I think that would be a cool book. I would, I would, I would read a book about, about Kushner in the white house. Um, and you know, there will be more, more, you know, documents released and more investigations, both, you know, official investigations and congressional investigations and, and, and journalism. We're going to learn a lot more about this time. Um, I, I mean, you know, we, we never stop, right. I mean, like, you know, we, we, we still are getting amazing Nixon biographies and things, you know, we, we keep, we never stop learning about, about what just happened. And, and so I imagine that the, the best and most revealing books of the Trump era have, have yet to be written. And, um, and I'll be reading them, you know, I don't, I don't want to write volume two of this thing. Um, and, and, and if Trump loses, I don't imagine that I will feel compelled to, um, but I'm going to keep reading and reviewing them for the Washington Post because um, there's just so much more to know and and understand. And part of it is what what you're saying about um, you know the future of Republican politics and and the conservative movement and whether um, the fact that this second election, right, like the you can look at 2016 and think that it was a fluke, think that look at what, you know, what happened in just these few states and, and, um, and all that. But now you've had, you know, re- regardless of the final specific result, you know, you've had a, a ratification of that. Trump got millions more votes this time than he did last time. Um, and so clearly this is a viable political project in some form. Um, and, it was not the kind of repudiation that some people, you know, hoped for or expected um, to to come. And so, whether it's Trump himself or someone else, you know, whether it's Tom Cotton or whether it's one of the Trump kids or you know, who's going to try to take take up that that mantle, um, you know, there's clearly something there. And um, and so that story, I mean, the guy who should write a volume two is Tim Alberta, you know, on. Uh, following up on 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 American Carnage, which, which was sort of a, a near term history of of the Republican Party, um, because that that's going to be an absolute huge story, and the the battle for the kind of mantle of of Trumpism is going to start like the moment that there's a final result in this election. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, and, and and I think everything is convoluted now because if it had been the repudiation that you know I would prefer. Um, you'd get better books out of it, right? I mean, forget all the other stuff about the future of the Republican Party, future conservatism, future of the country, yada, yada, yada. Lots of podcasts we can cover those. You'd get better books because people would want to head for the exits and say, hey, I wasn't part of all that. Here's why my hands are clean or blah, 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 blah. But now if it seems like in some way Trumpism or Trump may endure and define the party, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to keep their powder dry in a way and not tell those kinds of, you know, exculpatory tales. And, um, 
But those exculpatory tales are, I mean, they just seem so self-serving. So self-serving, right. You know, like, like, I don't know that those would necessarily produce good books. I mean, you know, it would have been like, you know, what would have those books been? Look, you know, look, I was just with him to try to steer him away from his worst instincts. You know, um, we all know he wasn't really a conservative, come on. But, you know, like, at least we were able to, um, you know, get certain kinds of things that we wanted and needed, whether it's, you know, taxes or judges. And, um, and, and really, you know, what would have you done? You know, like I, you know, stepping away and, and just condemning him would have, would have left him in the hands of even, you know, worst influences. And I mean, like those, you can make up that, that script, you know? And, and so now I think when suddenly there's this kind of tantalizing thing there for some politicians to think that, oh, look, um, you know, maybe I can inherit this, um, you know, he's getting what, 68 million votes. I mean, that's extraordinary, right? Um, so I, I wonder if there will be, um, if it'll be more revealing now, um, because there's, there's something there that people can now personally decide whether to repudiate or to embrace. Um, and it won't be so obvious sort of what, you know, like running away from Trump, you know, would just, Tim Alberta refers to, um, in his book, he refers to something he called, uh, what was the, what was the date of the election in 2016? Was it no, November 8th? Uh, I, I can't remember, but he, you know, say it was November 8th. He says there was something called the November 9th club. And it's everyone who just like suddenly found religion and like came to love Trump the next day. And all the, all the people who were, um, you know, like, on board with Trump before that, you know, like hated the November 9th club, you know, like hated those guys. Well, now there's, you know, a November 4th club, right? And, and you know, or it, if, sorry, if Trump had lost big, there would have been a November 4th club of everyone running for the exits, you know, saying like, oh, I was never part of that. You know, like, don't, don't pay attention to whatever I said before. But now you can't have that, right? Now, now it's a more complicated calculus for for Republican politicians to make. And I think it'll therefore be a lot more revealing um, about, about their, their motivations and their, and their intentions. You know, who's going to try to embrace, you know, the, the 68 million people who saw what Trump did for four years and said, yeah, I want, I want more of that. No, and also, I mean, I mean, it's funny, I've been thinking about writing about this. There's also just the fact that the polling is now so unreliable that politicians kind of have to like, figure out what to say without focus grouping at first, <laughs> you know, which is, whoa, whoa, that's <laughs> you know, crazy. I know it's wild <laughs> stuff. And, um, you know, there are a bunch of politicians out there who, you know, they like certainty more than anything in terms of being able to know where the base is, know where the public is, know what's a 70, 30 issue. And I think a lot of that going forward is blown up. And the, and the, but there's you know there's a tension that you're you're glossing over and I'm not saying intentionally or anything but like there's another aspect to this which is that as someone who for four years now has been decidedly not pro Trump um, I stopped calling myself never Trump the day he was elected because mm -hmm. you only have one president at a time blah 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 but um, uh, whatever label you want to put on me. For four years, I've had to have people tell me that I'm a disloyal Republican um, for not supporting Trump. And, I, and, and for a lot of these people, 
that was synonymous with saying not really a conservative, which I think is garbage. Um, but also, I don't give a rat's ass about being a loyal Republican, which confuses a lot of people. But that argument has a lot of power on a lot of normal people, is that if you're conservative, you have to support Republicans. And if you're Republican, you have to support the president, and he's the president, and yada, yada, yada. And there's this unity of goodness and unity of principle and unity, all this and consistency and all that. That's over for right now, because the most important, if Trump loses, the most important and powerful political office holder in the Republican Party in the United States is Mitch McConnell. And whatever flaws Mitch McConnell has, again, I'm, I don't care about calling myself a Republican. I'm much more comfortable supporting Mitch McConnell than I am Donald Trump, and which is not to say I don't have criticisms of Mitch McConnell. And so for the first time in four years, the Trumpists can't make the same kind of argument where good Republican equals good conservative equals, you know, patriotic because Trump's not in office. And if Trump goes one way and the Republican Party goes another, well, the Republican Party is the one that's actually holds the Senate and has elected office. And Trump is going to be doing his TV show or whatever it is. And that tension, I'm kind of fascinated to see how it plays out. Who, who of the people who switched to Trump did so because he he was the the power broker and the president um, are going to stay with him now that he's out of power, and who are going to be like, well, you know, he lost, and now we have to worry about the next fight for the Republican Party. And there, there's going to be a tension there that I don't think a lot of the, the really crazy pro-Trumpers have appreciated or anticipated yet. Is he not, you know, in the in the event that he loses, but loses with you know, millions more votes than he got last time. Um, does he not remain as the party kingmaker, right? Does everyone not have to come and, I mean, like, forget like what Mitt Romney did in 2012, right? Where you had to go and, and, and sort of kiss the ring. I mean, you know, doesn't Trump assume that, that role, you know, like, is he, is he, you know, if you strike me down, it'll be more powerful than you can possibly imagine, right? Like, I mean, like, like, is he, is he not still, um, would he not remain incredibly powerful um, in the direction of the party, even if, as you say, you know, Mitch McConnell is the most, you know, important, you know, elected official in, in the party? I don't know. I mean, you, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of the conservative, you know, movement and byways like you do. Yeah, no, look, I mean, look, this is all the undiscovered country right now, right? right. So, I think Trump could play it as the power broker. Um, but you look at the presidents who lost, I, and I fully stipulate Donald Trump is different than previous presidents, but George H.W. Bush was not the kingmaker in the Republican mm -hmm. Party after he lost. Even Ronald Reagan, and I, get, I know he, was, he had some sort of you know, uh, mental health issues by that point, but you know, he was looked down nostalgically, but not necessarily as the guy that laid on hands and he's as close as you can get to someone like that when you think about it. Um, Herbert Hoover certainly didn't play that role. Um, you know, he was a cranky dude um, for most of the 1930s. Um, but it is entirely, but then you see, so you get, again, this is sort of my point, right? So this, this distinction between Republicans and Trumpists that is, could emerge. If Trump starts a new television, if he buys OANN um, and uh, starts Trump TV, then you're going to have people who stay with Fox. You're going to have to have a two brand differentiation and the people who have contracts with Fox and stay on Fox and, you know, and, and I don't get used on Fox very much anymore, but I'm still technically on contract with them. Um, 
people have to decide, you know, and there's going to be, there are going to be fissures that I don't think we can necessarily appreciate right now. And given that Trump never really bothered to learn the intricacies of these different factions on the right, because he wanted everything to be a cult of personality about him, it remains to be seen whether he knows how to navigate all of that stuff and manipulate all that stuff so that he attracts people other than those who still think he's, you know, a four-dimensional chess player. And so I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know. Yeah. But we'll see. He's certainly going to be a major factor. But Sarah Palin was also a major factor. She's a huge cult figure on the right, huge populist figure. She didn't know how to play her cards, and she became kind of a sad cautionary tale. So I, I think don't know. The, the divisions on the right and how that plays out um, will be, will be not just interesting to watch starting now. I mean, I, I enjoy, I mean, just like the, the, the books that came out of the right, you know, between the never Trumpers and the more sycophantic books and the kind of like the pro Trump intellectuals who are trying to retrofit an ideology onto just, you know, the impulsive nature of, of, of this president. That was fascinating for me to read. I ended up spending a, a lot of time on that over the last four years. And from my perch as a, as a post book critic, um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that now on the left. I mean, the 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 moment that a a president Biden would be inaugurated, if that's how it goes, um, you know, the I get the sense there'll be very little honeymoon on the left, and suddenly, you know, all the all the pent up demands will will start to to emerge because you know Biden was a nominee not because he was considered the future of the party, he was a nominee because he was considered the one who could be Trump and. And now, you know, and if Trump is gone, then suddenly that, you know, he's that he, he doesn't have that card anymore, you know, except in a in a in a thank you kind of way. So I look forward to, you know, to the extent that those battles play out in books um, the same way that I focused a lot on the battles on the right during the Trump years. I imagine I'll be reading and writing about the the books that that show that battle on the left. All right. Well, I look forward to reading the next one. Um, Carlos Lozada, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, and hope to have you back on soon, because there's a lot of questions I would love to ask you just about being a book critic. Um, but I've used a lot, a lot of your time. So um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Carlos is gone, um, but not forgotten. Uh, glad we got to do that. And um, I'm kind of Fascinated to know how different the world is going to be by the time I recorded this and the time this airs um, or transmits. Uh, this is, airs is another one of these things that like youngins don't quite know why we use that word anymore. Sort of like um, drop a dime or a broken record or dial a phone number um, or uh, eat someone's heart while it's still beating and watch the light flicker from their eyes. Now, that's a different expression. Anyway. Um, Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Please keep up the reviews and the responses on Twitter. It's helpful. And, um, you know, if you can give us a bunch of stars on the various uh, Twitter platform, not Twitter, uh, podcast platforms, that would be great. If you can't, so be it. I know stars are scarce these days. Regardless, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.